Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 74, The Sherman Corollary, The Most American. Given the rather hard stare and grizzled demeanor he seemingly exhibited in every photograph, you may wonder if William Tecumseh Sherman somehow emerged into this world pristinely at age 40, possibly chain-smoking and swigging bourbon. Of course not. That's silly. He actually didn't smoke or drink that much. Yet there is a sense that the no-nonsense Tecumseh had a certain seriousness to his personality from a very young age. It did not, however, come from some inborn severity. Rather, it stemmed from the loss, as a young boy, of his father. The story of William Tecumseh Sherman flows directly from the life of his father. A man of extreme and public integrity, Charles Robert Sherman left the world before his time, and left behind eleven children by his wife. Charles Robert Sherman was born back in 1788 in Connecticut. As a young man, he faced a brilliant future in law. He graduated from Dartmouth, destined to become the next in a long lineage of judges in his family. And he did, just in a slightly different manner. After wedding Mary Hoyt, who herself received an excellent education, marking her as a lady of quality in those days, he moved to Lancaster, Ohio. Though Ohio was certainly no longer under the control of native tribes anymore, some parts of it weren't exactly considered safe for American settlers. The Shermans originally planned to settle on the land they acquired, which still goes to this day by the name of Sherman Township. However, due to the risks on the unsettled frontier, they instead moved southwards towards the more sedate town of Lancaster. The Shermans set themselves up in a fine home for the area, and stood out as very respectable citizens. It seems that the Sherman family could hardly stop themselves from success. In 1813, Charles Sherman gained a valuable prize, a post as collector of customs and duties owed to the government. Since he wasn't at an international border, this didn't really include tariffs, but it did include the fees on liquor and a few other commodities. Taxation in the antebellum era was rather light all around, and not only for political reasons. Sure, power in that age remained decentralized and often state-based, and the United States as a democracy had to bow to the desire of people for low taxes. Yet also many Americans on the frontiers had relatively little hard currency to tax anyhow, so it made good sense to tax those few items people would willingly spend on, especially because liquor was even then considered a small luxury instead of a necessity. However, if you remember back to our discussions of banking, you'll remember that much currency didn't circulate in the form of gold and silver coinage. Rather, citizens often paid these taxes in banknotes. And banks in the United States often seemed rather shaky, especially in regions far past the East Coast. And this small problem would rebound to the Sherman family's great misfortune. Four years later, when Charles Sherman's oldest son was only seven, the Monroe administration made the slightest of slight tweaks to their policy. From then on, the tariffs would have to be paid in the notes of only one bank, the Bank of the United States. But that bank did no business across most of the country. It certainly didn't bother with the relatively rural district where Charles Sherman operated. In fact, this tweak caused bank failures and the pile of bank notes that Sherman had accumulated from his tax collection intended for deposit directly into the treasury, turned into worthless waste paper almost overnight. Now, Sherman could, and probably should, have appealed for congressional relief. Indeed, given the circumstances, the government would hardly want to make an issue of it and offered that relief to some other officers in similar straits. But Charles Sherman felt that his position created a debt of honor, literally in this case. He dug deep into his own credit in order to pay the sum, and he did pay it. But he did so knowing that it would take years to recoup the loss. Still, he was a lawyer on the rise, and he managed to stay ahead of his debts. Many other men failed that test. He worked very hard indeed, and there were some rewards despite his difficulties. In 1823, Charles Robert Sherman received an appointment naming him a Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court. 
Given his education, he might well have expected to eventually attain such an honor. Yet at the time, he was only 34. But in the frontier state of Ohio, this was not that unusual. Several of his fellow justices were also young men, some even younger. Just as an example, his predecessor in the office was John McLean. He gained that post at the age of 31, hardly more than a toddler by the standards of most law courts. Also, if you happen to remember that name, McLean would go on to the Supreme Court of the United States. He wrote a powerful dissent in the Dred Scott decision that became the Republican argument. In any case, Charles Sherman's new work came with a good regular salary. He would, however, necessarily ride circuit in much the same way many frontier lawyers, such as Abraham Lincoln, did in those days. Because many regions had no day-to-day court system, the entire legal system just up and moved to meet the people where they were, state Supreme Court justices included. Somehow, amidst all this, Charles Sherman found the time to father 11 children in total. Even more amazingly, his wife Mary manages somehow raise the entire brood, even on her husband's leftover salary after the regular payment for the debts. Little Tecumseh Sherman, who may or may not have been formerly dubbed William at the time, came into the world in February of 1820. For the record, Charles Sherman evidently called him Tecumseh, and his friends and family differed on whether he was William or Tecumseh first. The name Tecumseh comes from a Shawnee war leader. In the years before the War of 1812, he sought to create a pan-Indian alliance to resist the expansion of the United States. Tecumseh's legacy was, and in some ways still is, complicated. He vigorously opposed departures from the old ways of the tribes, at times embraced both peace and war, and encouraged a somewhat dubious religious movement led by his younger brother. However, while an open and avowed enemy of the United States for much of his life, Tecumseh earned considerable respect for his courage and humanity. He was not, however, a great strategist. While trying to build a huge confederation in 1811, he left himself open to attack and an easy American victory. During the War of 1812, he allied with the British. However, the British had no interest at all in Tecumseh's ambitions, but acted in the best interest of Britain, surprise, surprise. Although they were willing to ally honorably with a native leader, they did not prioritize his political goals. In the end, however, both Tecumseh and British alike faced superior numbers in the northern front of the war. In 1813, Tecumseh fell in the Battle of the Thames. The name, then, seemingly represents an odd choice for a young American boy from Ohio. But again, many Americans respected Tecumseh's proud idealism, fearless tenacity, and skill in battle. In any case, it was William Tecumseh Sherman's name, and he proudly claimed it, even from a young age. Yet young Sherman would have very little time to get to know his father. At the tender age of nine, he experienced the deepest grief that a child can know, as did his family. They received word that Charles Robert Sherman, only 40, had suddenly taken ill. Before Mary could even rush to his side, and she tried, a further message carried grim tidings of his death. So it goes. Lives are randomly cut short by the vagaries of fate at any time. Yet the death of Robert Sherman carried an even greater toll for his family than most. Mary Boyd Sherman, as good a wife and mother as any, educated and tough enough to go from comfortable Connecticut to the then-rough frontier of Ohio, found she could not possibly raise all the children. To manage and make do, she farmed out her brood to the family and friends who would take them in. This practice was rather common in that day and age under similar circumstances. And here is where young William Tecumseh Sherman's story took an unexpected and yet extremely fruitful turn. Despite the grief he had endured, he found some solace when taken in by the neighboring Ewing family. Thomas Ewing, the family patriarch, was the only man in Lancaster better off than the Shermans, and the two families had grown very close over the years. Thomas Ewing's career and ambitions ran very high indeed. He became one of Ohio's senators, and eventually a cabinet member in the Harrison and Tyler administrations. And Thomas Ewing evidently liked the intelligent, serious-minded William Tecumseh Sherman. He brought the boy into his own household, and raised him like one of his own. Being a politically savvy and well-connected man, indeed, a few years later, he secured a post at West Point for his adopted son, 
and one who showed so much intelligence and promise. At age 16, Sherman went off to West Point after a meandering journey. He started off by venturing to Washington, D.C., visiting Thomas Ewing in the capital, and even seeing President Andrew Jackson from a distance. He continued to Pennsylvania and New York, even nervously trying out that newfangled railroad. But before we leave Sherman's life with the Ewings aside, we should also note that his experiences brought him into close contact with little Ellen, the daughter of Thomas and Maria Ewing. Throughout his years at West Point and into his early army career, he would write to the Ewings no less often than to his own mother and siblings. In a tone varying between teasing and caring, he showed his private brand of affection, something quite different from the stern General Sherman of his later public life. And he had a little bit of an eye on Ellen as she began to grow into a woman. But in any case, some of that lay in the future. Once he arrived at West Point, Sherman took part in the usual life of a cadet. One might assume that he would not attract a great circle of friends, given that hardness to his personality. Yet it seems that Sherman, in fact, grew close to a broad array of his fellow cadets. The seriousness, or even grouchiness, evident in subjects he disliked, played no part in his relationships with his friends, which proved remarkably warm. He also displayed an unusual flexibility in building links across social gaps. Sherman could chat with tightly wound Easterners or proud Southern gents, ordinary Westerners like himself with equal ease. As it turns out, Sherman also did very well in his classes, although he did not drive himself to become an overachiever like, say, Robert E. Lee. On the merit of his academics, he stood out near the top of his class, an impressive performance given the lack of advanced education in his background, and in particular, the lack of familiarity with French language studies. Sherman accumulated a fair number of merits, but that stemmed less from outright misbehavior than the relentless spit-and-polish regime West Point's leadership demanded. Even a slight mistake in presentation could earn a cadet demerits on the spot. This might not have been too annoying, except remember the cadets had to study long hours, frequently in the cold and dark, and depending on their diligence might go days or weeks without a full night's sleep. Sherman, for his part, simply didn't care for the military discipline, and shrugged it off as much as possible. He did possess a mischievous side, and instructors half-fondly remembered him as a bit of a joker. One area where he could merely endure was the issue of religion. West Point in those days required all cadets to attend an Anglican High Mass every Sunday. This meant a two-hour-long service with, judging by the reaction of most cadets, extremely tedious sermons. Now, West Point did not care whether the cadet was Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Atheist, Catholic, or Agnostic. Attendance remained mandatory for the long-suffering staff, too. Those last two, Catholic and Agnostic, had some bearing on Sherman's situation. While Americans held religious affiliations of all stripes then and now, most men and women held, in some sense, to a Protestant church. Although, we should also understand that most seemingly could barely explain what separated a Methodist from a Quaker if push came to shove. But many also cared relatively little for religion. Then as now, many a man cared more for money, social advancement, personal ambition, or whatever else might motivate them. Sherman belonged emphatically to this latter category. Whether a result of his personality, some particular logical deduction he pondered or perceived, or a certain inevitable grief caused by the death of his father, William Tecumseh Sherman had no time for religion. It's not very clear what, if anything, he believed in. But he recoiled from practiced religion, and in particular, religious ritual. We should note here that while the Sherman family was vaguely Protestant, the Ewings were devout Catholics, or at least Mrs. Ewing and her daughters were. Sherman suffered himself to be baptized a Catholic while under the Ewing's care, but evidently the fire of faith never quite burned in his heart. He suffered the Anglican Mass at West Point, but the words of the preachers made equally little impression on him. And, for the record, he possessed similar disdain for the culture and beliefs of, well, most everyone he ever met, including, but not limited to, Native Americans or American Indians, Mexicans, African Americans, and Brazilians. If we're being entirely honest, his disdain extended to nearly all beliefs not precisely like his own. 
Sherman sort of looked at everyone with a certain suspicious skepticism. In his defense, if Sherman thought very little of and had a certain hidebound contempt of all he surveyed, he also exhibited great tolerance to all and sundry. As we will see eventually, Sherman could express open racism in one breath and then treat the object of his contempt with generosity and fairness the next. However, let us return to his time at West Point. In his second year, Sherman claimed to be the one who dubbed a new cadet with his nickname, Sam. The boys had noticed the young man's trunk bore the initials USG. However, although the boy gave his name as Ulysses Grant, he actually didn't have anything to offer for that middle initial. Sherman apparently decided US sounded an awful lot like Uncle Sam, and so it would be henceforth. William Tecumseh Sherman graduated from West Point in 1840, ranking 6. That all but guaranteed him a post in the prestigious artillery if he cared for it. But as it turned out, after receiving his commission as second lieutenant in the 3rd Artillery, Sherman would learn relatively little of cannons and much of soldiering and adventure. It was probably inevitable, given his strong academic performance and many friendships, that Sherman would find military life more interesting than most. But more than that, almost from the moment he ventured out into military service, Sherman found himself exhilarated by exploration and the opportunities to see the great expanses of the United States. He only ever briefly returned to home in Ohio during his post-graduation furlough and times thereafter. It seems that he had, after a fashion, adopted the Army itself as its home. Though he did stop by in Washington on the way to pay his respects to his half-adopted sister, Ellen, then gaining her own education. Sherman's first official posting came in Florida. Yet despite misgivings over the possibility of encountering more snakes and alligators and hostile scalpers' hatchets, Sherman discovered he rather liked the place. Sure, it was a swampy morass with very little of the accoutrements of civilization, and also the uncharted sandbars sometimes destroyed ships and sent sailors and passengers alike to their deaths. And the Second Seminole War had just started, and some of the soldiers became half mad or half sick to death with isolation and fever. But apart from all that, Lieutenant Sherman found a surprisingly pleasant existence. He could explore, find exotic animals, and mass a collection of oddities, from pets to skeletons to feathers. As with many graduates from the stifling confines of West Point, he thrived given the chance to see a bit more of the world. Playing a very minor role in the actual war, Sherman apparently never heard a shot fired in anger. While he did achieve success in calmly bringing in one Seminole chief, there likely had been no threat at the time. Of course, one of the difficulties in American relations with the Native American or American Indian tribes was that neither side entirely trusted the other. Some tribes' people would jump to the casual murder of strangers. While contrary rise, many Americans broke their word to the tribes, or more specifically to the leaders negotiating on their behalf, in nearly the same breath they gave it. Sherman at least committed no treacherous acts in the national service. Despite not experiencing a taste of battle, Sherman soon received a promotion to first lieutenant. This occurred very early in his military career. Many other new officers labored for years before receiving the same honor. The War Department also dispatched him to fresh assignments, including St. Augustine and then Mobile Bay. But before he really settled into the latter place, he was on the move once more to Fort Moultrie guarding Charleston Harbor. Across the entrance of the bay, he would daily see the rising fortress of Fort Sumter, not yet completed. Now, Sherman had only ever a brief taste of high society before seeing Charleston. The United States, then, had wealthier cities, and more modern cities, and more idealistic cities, and cities entirely free of slavery. Yet it must be admitted that it had no city with quite the same level of elite culture, except possibly New Orleans. Now, we cannot, and absolutely should not, forget that the source of its wealth and leisure came primarily from the enslaved African Americans of Charleston and the plantations of its wealthy upper class. But it's also very understandable that the city's beauty and numerous charms seduced many who ought to have been wiser or more skeptical. Sherman had a great deal of skepticism in him. Even so, between the dances, horse riding, and cultural lures like the theater, he and many other young officers got away to the city from the tedium of garrison life as often as possible. 
There they socialized with many pretty planter's daughters, who often appreciated the dashing men in uniform. It was not exactly that surprising. Now, through all of these assignments, Sherman kept up his frequent correspondence with family and friends, including, of course, Ellen Ewing. In 1843, he proposed marriage to her, and obtained a furlough allowing him to visit Ohio and catch up with both the Sherman and Ewing families. Now, the only hitch in getting hitched lay in Sherman's army career because Ellen quickly accepted. As with so many other young men in the service, well, the promotions came slowly and Congress set the pay scale very low. Thomas Ewing favored the match, but he thought Sherman ought to leave the service to find work elsewhere. The problem with that notion was that well, William T. Sherman just loved the army, and he loathed most of the other options open to him. Though very intelligent, he wasn't particularly engineering-minded or mechanically inclined. He cordially despised lawyers, journalists, merchants, bankers, politicians. Actually, come to think of it, there weren't many professions he respected. On some level, he found most of them dishonest and disreputable, despite the fact that, uh, well, his own family contained quite a few of those professions. He could trust a man in uniform carrying a rifle, but he always felt deeply uncomfortable with men who made their living by words. He just didn't have any faith in them, either the words or the men. So he returned to his command with the engagement pending, but no wedding planned for the foreseeable future. Sherman spent relatively little time in Charleston, however, as he soon found himself assigned to a commission examining requests for reimbursement from Georgia militia who fought in the Seminole Wars. Now, in between exposing various outrageously false claims for horses supposedly killed in the fighting, he found the time to explore northern Georgia. He even sketched from a little mountain called Kennesaw, which would one day loom very large indeed in his plans. But at the time, it was no more than a beautiful country height from which one could look out and see the open landscape many miles distant. The excursion and the commission finally ended, and Sherman returned to Moultrie once more. But the country had just elected a new president, namely James K. Polk. And though no one knew it, they were charting a course of war towards somebody. Maybe it would be with Britain, some thought, or perhaps Mexico. And in the end, of course, it would be Mexico as we know. In 1846, just after the outbreak of war, Sherman received fresh orders to recruiting duty, a vital necessity and one many officers would relish. Apart from living and traveling on Uncle Sam's credit, he would potentially get to see much more of the country and get away from the garrison. Sherman probably would have happily accepted it any other time. But under the circumstances, he begged to be sent to a war zone instead, because, well, that's where the action was. His superiors rebuked him, but evidently thought that he could indeed serve better in another role. The army would need good men in California, after all. So while the force went west directly under Colonel Kearney, the War Department hedged its bets by dispatching soldiers from the east as well. Sherman got his orders and rushed to get aboard the ship sailing from New York, as though he feared someone would think twice of the measure. As it turned out, Sherman might have been the one who regretted it. Just as Ulysses S. Grant found the journey across Panama decidedly horrific years later, Lieutenant Sherman discovered he did not much care for the long voyage. His ship would not, in fact, land in Nicaragua or even Panama, but sailed around all South America. And the ship did stop in several ports, but these, of course, proved only brief stays to recover and replenish supplies. It took six long months to arrive in California. The sloop, packed to the gills with soldiers, endured two particularly nasty storms along the way. For Sherman, there's little to do but stroll the deck and idle away his time. His cabin mate, Henry Halleck, spent his own days in study. But fortunately, the pair got along well enough, despite the absurd contrast they made. Quite exhausted by the end, Sherman cheerfully disembarked in Monterey in the hope of finding some action, only to discover, to his horror, that the war in California was practically over. Despite initial reports of fighting or uprisings, he had, well, almost nothing to do except settle in for an occupation. Other men had already taken all the glory to be won. This doesn't mean that Lieutenant Sherman refused to perform his duties. On the contrary, he did so energetically. 
However, he felt the keen disappointment of failing to take part in the great adventure of his time. And indeed, note that men with fewer years of service in the lower rank just six months earlier would soon earn promotions over his head. Despite some griping over the unappealing desert landscape, Sherman would eventually come to appreciate California. But months of ordinary military administration lay ahead of him. And yet, when history finally did catch up with young Sherman, it placed him at the very crossroads of American history. When the first flakes of gold turned up at Sutter's Mill in 1848, Californians beat a path towards the military. Not to bring order, mind you, but rather because basically nobody in California could actually authenticate the find. There were few chemists or other authorities in the region. The first flakes of gold arrived in the office of Sherman's superior, who immediately asked the young lieutenant to identify them. This Sherman did, noting that the material indeed appeared to be true gold, and not mere iron pyrite. A simple mechanical test showing the material had the ductility of gold and the correct color proved it. A quirk in this lay in the fact that the United States had not yet concluded a treaty with Mexico. Although one had been signed, it took effect in May of 1848. This created the situation where the army declined to enforce anyone's land claims, which is part of the reason the gold rush created a great deal of chaos and bankrupted Sutter himself. But Sherman went out to inspect these newborn gold fields, which had turned into a massive far-flung camp almost overnight. By the time Sherman returned to the administration, he discovered that the army had just about packed up behind his back. So many soldiers decamped the gold fields as to leave the barracks half barren. And as more soldiers arrived, many of those fled immediately in order to, well, mine gold. Actually, one could hardly blame them. In those days, the officers received low pay and few career prospects for their service, and the ranks of the army received much less on both accounts. The uniformed men hardly traveled that road alone. Tradesmen, farmers, and laborers alike rushed to experience their own adventure. And at least for the moment, it seemed like they might really all find a fortune, as a river of gold poured forth from the Sierra Nevada foothills. This actually made life very difficult for Sherman himself. His pay stayed at the same low army rate, while suddenly prices skyrocketed. He made do under the circumstances, and perhaps for the first time seriously thought of leaving the army. He certainly had no interest in panning for gold or swinging a pick. But now he saw opportunities in California, and he could only slowly climb the career ladder in the army. Besides, hadn't he waited long enough to marry? In the meantime, he had to maintain some semblance of order in the ranks and try to make ends meet at the same time. He did both with equal aplomb. Now, if you'll recall our episode on Grant's misadventures in California, you'll note that he experienced wild disaster after disaster. Despite hard work and dedication, it seemed that ill luck and the occasional dishonest friend turned investment after investment to ashes. Sherman, by contrast, did fairly well for himself. Lieutenant Sherman made a few more marks in California history, actually. He helped lay out the streets of Sacramento at the same time he earned a decent living from an investment into a general goods store. In January of 1850, a new commanding officer allowed Sherman the opportunity to return east on leave. Sherman would probably be promoted to captain and get a new post at the same time. He understood that Sherman likely would not return to California. The war had, after all, finally ended, and many other young officers sought to visit family and start their own long-delayed lives. And so it would be for William and Ellen in a few months' time. Now, given that his military history mostly tended to involve far-flung camps in many various unpleasant locations, Sherman found himself now almost the center of attention. Thomas Ewing, after all, remained a powerful politician, and the news that Sherman was set to marry his daughter attracted a fairly high-toned crowd. So when Sherman arrived in Washington to report to the War Department, well, even Winfield Scott wanted to ask Sherman the details about the status of California. And, well, as it turned out, he and President Zachary Taylor wanted to attend the wedding. 
The young couple were also present a scant few weeks thereafter, attending the very July 4th festivities where Taylor probably took sick. The president would die suddenly, of course, and Sherman recognized the growing political problem, although he had very little opinion of what to do about it. Now, once his leave ran out, new president or no, Sherman received a new appointment as commissary officer at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. He had managed army supplies before, just one of many tasks to be done in California. But St. Louis promised a more pleasant environment than the far-off Pacific coast. Besides, this position, indeed, came with a promotion and some higher pay. But as it turned out, not quite high enough, for William and Ellen soon had a baby on the way, and she was a lady who expected a certain level of quality to her accommodations. Tecumseh could get by with a shack on the beach in a Florida army camp, but that wasn't quite what Ellen had in mind. So Captain Sherman dug into his savings, and Ellen often spent time at her family home in Ohio for the next several years. This, too, perhaps pushed Sherman to consider a change of career. He loved the army, and he was doing good work, but he would need another promotion or two to feel entirely comfortable, and that would take a long time. In 1853, an old connection came through. While taking a temporary assignment in New Orleans uh, to put supply matters in order and root out corruption, a friend of Sherman's stopped by to offer him a unique and uniquely valuable employment. The banking firm of Lucas and Simons wanted to expand its operations into California. The newest state in the Union had very few solid financial companies operating at all, though many wildcat banks. Lucas and Simons saw incredible opportunity. Actually, the opportunities were even greater than they imagined. Out of misplaced suspicion, the state legislature effectively vowed not to get involved with banking at all, which left firms to do business more or less as they pleased. And, to also place this moment into historical perspective, the gold rush was winding down and would very roughly end two years later, which we will get to. But California's growth did not stop with the flow of gold. The Treasury Department would open its first mint in California, though of course not the United States as a whole, in 1854. And even when the mining itself stopped, the gold would remain in circulation within the United States. It would smooth the way for international trade and immigration, and let us not forget that San Francisco Bay is an amazing resource. At the same time, the rapid growth already convinced many that a continent-spanning railroad made complete sense and men were already dreaming of connecting all the way to California. So the Golden State, then, was a land of seemingly unbounded possibilities. And as it happens, Sherman was exactly the right man for the job in several ways. First, he obviously had direct familiarity with California itself, and knew many of its important citizens. Second, as a West Point graduate, he was about as well-trained in mathematics as anybody so he could handle the financial accounting side well enough with a few clerks. And third, though William Tecumseh Sherman may never have heard a shot fired in anger, he had a reputation as an efficient and effective administrator. The bank could hardly want anything more. So William Tecumseh Sherman sailed back to California in late 1853, bidding his wife and children a temporary farewell. After two shipwrecks, in a single day no less, he arrived in San Francisco. There he quickly learned the trade of banking from one of the partners of the firm. Sherman's showed some amount of ambition as well, wanting to raise triple the amount of capital planned. He also gave thought about expanding to Sacramento. Regardless, after getting up to speed on the business side, he raced back east to gather his family, the youngest child accepted, and ushered them off to California as well. And thus began one of the happiest, yet also most miserable, times of Sherman's life. He kept remarkably busy and carefully checked everything. He did, in fact, build a three-story bank building, and the money absolutely poured into his firm. Lucas and Simons just might become one of the nation's premier banking firms, and by virtue of his position, Sherman acquired an interest in the firm as well. That is, he received sweat equity as part of his compensation. And for company, he was now living in a rather luxurious style, for San Francisco at least, with Ellen. And out of the home, he could while away evenings chatting with officers and soldiers stationed in California, many of whom chose to do business at his bank. 
The real difficulty came with his health. For unclear reasons, Sherman began to have horrible episodes described as asthma. Uh, The exact cause, however, was unclear. It might have been some unknown disease, or more likely an allergy or possibly a reaction to the cold and damp. Regardless, he faced many pitiful nights where he could only gasp for air. Ellen tended to her husband carefully, but she found life in California much, much less pleasing. That said, a great deal of the problem appears to have been the great distance separating her from her parents. Besides, one babe had been left behind in Ohio, too young to travel safely. While complaining and pining for home, she also did make a number of local friends and put on a cheerful face for frequent guests. And the Shermans made plans for a new house in the city as well. Perhaps they would put down some roots. But 1855 proved the year the worm turned. In February, news of bank failures spread to California. A third of the banks in San Francisco failed on the news, as depositors rushed to claim their money. Many firms simply shut their doors and huddled in silence, trying to wait out the panic. Sherman's cautious financial planning and honesty, however, allowed him to simply act normally. Everyone who wanted to withdraw did so in full, and indeed there was a huge and riotous crowd that wanted to do so. But this ironically gave the firm an excellent reputation. Unfortunately, that only meant surviving in a contracting economy. While California's long-term prospects remained very bright, the state's financial mismanagement and the end of the gold rush meant immediate hard times. Too many banks had lent out fortunes to fools, outright swindlers, or starry-eyed founders with more ambition than sense, because just a year earlier it seemed like good times and easy money would never stop. Then it did stop, and the mismanagement began an extremely painful contraction. Despite considerable fiscal prudence, by 1857 the firm of Lucas and Simons decided to wind up their California operations, without Sherman's knowledge or influence, or without even closely analyzing the firm's actual prospects in California locally. Although deeply unhappy with this, Sherman accepted, and the firm brought him and his family back east to New York. But if there was ever a time not to be a banker in New York City, it was 1857. The problem lay in several areas. First, the gold rush had given rise to several years of easy money across the country, and yeah, does that sound familiar? Because that is exactly the story of California. But while the gold continued to flow out of California, well, it was now doing so at a more measured pace. In the meantime, the banks looked nervously at all the inflation wrought from the overall influx of gold. Now second, many speculative new companies had sprung into existence. Again, the same story as in California, but here more notably in the rail industry. Now many of these had dubious management and even more dubious finances, But given the explosive growth of the industry, well, even unprofitable lines seemed like great investments. But as the money supply began to tighten, they found it harder to gain new credit. And third, the Crimean War finally ended in 1856. This had a number of impacts. While peace was no doubt a good thing for the many people actively caught up in it, it also reopened the grain exports of the Russian Empire to Europe. For several years, American farmers had busied themselves growing and selling huge crops to feed the hungry mouths of Western Europe, but now they had competition. Orders for American grain declined rapidly in the short run, even as European manufacturers could retool for peacetime purposes. Given the increasing economic problems, any spark might set off an economic wildfire. That happened when the Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company failed. The company's executives had made some bad investments, but saw others turn sour over issues far outside their control. The problems finally exploded, however, when a clerk stole a small fortune and absconded. The trust company's statements, which, shall we say, stretched the truth in order to minimize the problem, did not tamp down the resulting explosion. In the aftermath, some banks and other financial firms failed and far more restricted their lending. This sudden contraction, in addition to weak grain exports and wobbly railroads, well, it led to a financial crash all over the North, the so-called Panic of 1857. The shockwaves made life harder for just about everyone in the free states. It also left Sherman without a job. Oddly enough, the problem came more from the St. Louis headquarters than the New York branch. 
the main partners decided to close up shop. They hadn't gone bankrupt, but times had become so tough they simply wanted out. Their work had gotten too hard for the rewards. Sherman heard the news from the papers before the telegram advising of the situation even arrived on his desk. Now, Sherman spent the next few months traveling between St. Louis, New York, and even California to help wind up the business. And when all was said and done, he had been left with just about nothing for his hard work and genuine successes of the last few years. Part of the issue, though, was that much like his father, he refused to abandon a debt of honor, even if no law required it. He made good on losses to several army officers who had invested with him, right out of his own pocket. Now, while he owned a fair sum of property that in good times could easily have sold and paid for everything, in the hard economy of 1857 to 1858, it either wouldn't sell or went for a meager half of the price in boom times. Sherman had, not coincidentally, been buying in boom times. Unsure of what to do with his life, he took an opportunity to work for a law firm in Kansas. This led to the bizarre result that William Tecumseh Sherman, perpetually annoyed at lawyers and politicians and their untrustworthy wordplay, became accepted to the Kansas State Bar. A judge duly swore him in, and without any formal qualifications. The state must have had a rather distinct lack of qualified attorneys. That said, Sherman anticipated the need to read up on the law, and he had a quick mind in any case. Though unlikely to make a good trial lawyer, one might guess he'd do very well preparing research or carefully filing well-argued briefs, which was exactly how he operated in the firm. This lasted only a brief time, however. Dissatisfied and seeing that the firm just didn't have enough work, Sherman looked towards perhaps reactivating his commission, or finding some other useful employment. And then once again, fate in the form of a friend intervened. In this case, Sherman heard about an opportunity from Don Carlos Buell. The opportunity involved heading up a new military academy opening in Alexandria, Louisiana, or really across the river. Given his background and professional education, Sherman had an excellent chance of earning the position of superintendent. And he got the chance when, of all people, Pierre Gustave Touton Beauregard decided against the appointment himself. The latter man was a native of the state and had a fair amount of influence, but he preferred other pursuits. For Sherman, the post offered several advantages. First, the pay was very respectable, 3500 to start, and he would soon receive a raise to 4000 annually. That was by no means meager pay for the time. And the state promised to build a home for Sherman and his family, giving him some hope that he could reunite with his wife and all his children more permanently. Uh, but the position also kept him in touch with the military world Sherman loved so much. And besides, Sherman had always taken much delight in the sunny South. For the next year, Sherman enthusiastically set to work creating this college, selecting the initial faculty and gathering all the resources necessary for the work. It wasn't a particularly large institution, certainly not yet a rival for Virginia Military Institute. Sherman hoped for an initial class of 100 cadets, and he only got about half that. Yet he could take pride in developing, from a nearly empty building, the foundation for a great institution. And so it would be, for the college greatly expanded still exists today. After more than a century, and an intervening civil war, it stands in Baton Rouge under the name Louisiana State University. Yet that great civil war was coming, and Sherman could hardly ignore the reality even if he wanted to. Which he certainly didn't. For a man who disdained politics with a contemptuous sneer, Sherman absolutely kept abreast of political events. He wrote frequently to his more politically active family members, including his brother John, concerning the affairs of the nation. And that was an interesting point, because John Sherman became a steadfast Republican. Indeed, John Sherman arguably had a greater net impact on the course of the Civil War than William T. He was one of the figures driving events behind the scenes, and nearly became Speaker of the House in 1860. Had he not signed his name to a book particularly odious to Southern pro-slavery interests, he almost certainly would have gone on to even greater power and influence. But William Tecumseh Sherman tended to adopt a quote-unquote moderate view of slavery. In the context of the antebellum era, this meant deploring slavery privately, but doing precisely nothing about it publicly, and carefully averting one's gaze where necessary. 
Essentially, William Tecumseh Sherman always punted on the great moral issue of his own lifetime. He would never approve of slavery, and perhaps thought it made slave owners, and especially the children of slave owners, thuggish, unruly, and narcissistic. But he also felt very comfortable in their world, even though he probably never seriously considered buying slaves himself. And for the record, his wife Ellen stood firmly alongside her own family in condemning slavery. Instead, Sherman worried that his ties to abolition-minded politicians might sour his relationship with the influential men of Louisiana and ruin his college. So there was, in the immediate sense, a practical reason to avoid delicate topics. Yet it turned out they made no issue of it, even though several leading politicians were actively protesting John Sherman, even while shaking hands with William. Despite his seemingly solid, almost inflexible opinions, Sherman had a way of putting people at ease. Besides, they had chosen him to train unschooled boys into well-educated men, not campaign for Congress. The times were changing. In the spring of 1860, John Brown led his ill-fated raid to Harper's Ferry. Then came the long summer of 1860, when the Democrats disintegrated in the splintered presidential election of Abraham Lincoln in the autumn. As the nation slid into crisis, the Buchanan administration apparently seized up with uncertainty, having no idea what to do. January of 1861 brought terrible news for Sherman, personally, as well as for the country. He had been doing a great job leading his little college. But the Louisiana state government, sparked into action by an unfounded report from their own representatives in Washington, seized two federal forts at the mouth of the Mississippi River. The state had not formally seceded yet and would not for two more weeks, so even going by its own law, this was more or less rank treason. In the aftermath, the state moved weapons and other military supplies to sites farther inland, where the stockpiles could be more easily controlled. And it so happened that the state had a military academy well up the river, far away from any federal soldier. Superintendent William T. Sherman did not take this well. Apart from the fact that he was you know, outraged at the treason, he also felt something like unutterable disgust at the arms being sent to him. In his own words, Thus I was made the receiver of stolen goods, and these goods the property of the United States. This grated hard on my feelings as an ex-army officer, and on counting the arms I had noticed they were packed in the old familiar boxes, with the U.S. simply scratched off. Sherman would soon resign the position he took so much pride and delight in, and return north. Uncertain of what lay in store for his country, he reported to Washington, Given his political connections, he was able to see Lincoln in person and explained, more or less, the mode of thinking prevailing among the leaders of Louisiana. Now, here we run into an error on Sherman's part, and one that he would repeat in the future to his great misfortune. He didn't like bankers or lawyers, although hypocritically he had been both, and seemed to consider politicians something of a hybrid between the two. And as far as it went, he respected a southern gentleman who might earn the votes of his neighbors through sheer reputation, much more than a scrabbling northern gladhander. So Sherman was never going to entirely understand a man like Lincoln. When Lincoln responded to Sherman's disturbing explanations with a glib remark exuding confidence, Sherman did not necessarily comprehend that Lincoln had not merely dismissed the issue. If Lincoln did not entirely believe the Confederacy would fight, we also know he prepared his political groundwork for the possibility they would fight. But Lincoln naturally could not just cry out in horror and fear, nor could he simply order the army, which barely existed, to restore order as might a European monarch. This Sherman could not entirely grasp. In part, the very hard-headed insistence on a coldly realistic view, and his complete honesty, which made him such a good banker, and would make him a great general, also made him a terrible politician. He really could be friendly and charming and even teasing, but he simply hadn't a deceptive bone in his body. And his loyalty to the Union was as uncompromising as his character. For the time being, Sherman returned to Missouri discouraged. On May 10th, following the Camp Jackson affair, Sherman and one of his sons were actually in the crowd when shots rang out. The pair jumped down and lay prone until the air cleared and they could make their escape from the crowds. Several days of street violence followed, suppressed by the army in the end. If Sherman disliked anything more than politicians, it was riots and violence, and he would, during the war, 
make a habit of suppressing guerrilla activity. But before he could think of a new civil career, too, Sherman discovered a chance to rejoin the army because it was now growing. And this time, he entered the ranks as a full colonel, reporting to Washington in order to take over a regiment. However, in practice, he never did. General Chief Scott needed a capable administrator to help manage the military buildup. And then, in the prelude to Bull Run, Sherman suddenly got handed command over an entirely brigade, which he led into battle. Now, if you refer back to our discussion of Bull Run, you'll recall that Sherman handled his first fight, his first command, and his first battle, well, very well indeed. Many officers struggled to get their soldiers into line. But while it could not have been easy, Sherman managed it just fine. In fact, his quick and aggressive marching, plus fortuitous confusion in the rebel ranks, nearly caused the entire Confederate army to rout off the field. So while General McDowell ultimately left the field himself with honor intact but not his reputation, Sherman would keep both. In fact, in the aftermath, he received a promotion and another highly visible assignment. He would report to the command of, well, General Robert Anderson, engaged in the vital work of recruiting Kentuckians to the Union cause. Also, more subtly, Anderson's diplomacy would be vital in keeping Kentucky loyal to the old flag. Crucially, Sherman really, really wanted to avoid taking over Anderson's position, and made that his singular request before accepting the post. Now, this might seem like a curious point, except that Sherman was already feeling the stress and strain of military administration. Also, Anderson's strength was already flagging after a long career. Command shrugged at the request for the moment, accepting it, but evidently not really giving it serious thought. So Sherman went off to temporary offices just across the river from Kentucky, about the closest he had been to his Ohio home in quite a long time, excepting brief visits. But he had much on his hands and too little time. General Anderson needed a capable right hand like Sherman, and on that point at least, Sherman delivered. He was a good administrator, and he led troops in protecting the Louisville area once Kentucky fully signed on to the Union cause. Yet before long, Anderson really did resign. Sherman took over the overall Kentucky command because Washington did not send out a replacement. At that point, he slowly became completely overwhelmed by the same duties that wore Anderson down in a matter of weeks. Also coming into play was newly appointed Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston, who hardly had an army to his name, but much courage. As we explained in his own episode, Johnston adopted a seemingly aggressive stance to conceal his extreme weakness. The bluff worked perfectly on Sherman, already exhausted with his duties and inadequate military administration and supply. Even before, he had greatly overestimated the size of the Confederate forces in the field. Uh, this was before he took overall command. But the added pressure and Johnson's aggression merely increased his struggle. And then, one of the odder episodes in a very odd war occurred. It was the result of several chance factors, and it changed the course of Sherman's career. In the fall of 1861, the Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, and Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas came west on a fact-finding tour investigating corruption in the Western Command, mostly aimed at Fremont's erratic administration, not Sherman. Now, they stopped in Louisville where Sherman had his headquarters. This was by no means unusual. Louisville was a major rail and river hub. But Sherman asked them to stay overnight, probably in the hopes of discussing some of his concerns. Cameron, tired and possibly ill, agreed to rest the night. Sherman duly came over to the hotel. However, Cameron and Thomas were not alone at this time. Among the hangers-on was a newspaper reporter and a couple army officers. Now, Sherman didn't want to discuss army business very thoroughly with anyone who might not be officially authorized. But Cameron snapped at him to get on with it and assured him that everyone present would, well, more or less do their duty. But Sherman then delivered a very explosive statement. He reported that, by his estimates, the army would require a force a couple hundred thousand strong to put down the rebellion on this front alone. Simon Cameron was not pleased with this notion, not by a long shot. For one, that was about as many soldiers as the entire United States had in total at this point. For another, it seemed like a ridiculously outsized request 
and the product of fear instead of reason. But the biggest problem was that this message was simply not something Cameron wanted to hear right then. It was bad news, he did not like bad news, and he really did not want that specific kind of news going on the record when he needed to show progress. Simon Cameron had demanded Sherman speak. In the way of powerful men, he then tried to shoot the messenger. Once Sherman had left, Cameron and probably Lorenzo Thomas more or less conspired to smear Sherman with every ounce of mud available to them. That reporter who was present? Well, he eagerly spread word of mad General Sherman, obviously mentally unbalanced, and etc. They even stooped to putting some accusations in Thomas's official report, which may actually have been written by that newspaper man a serious breach of proper procedure. Both Cameron and Thomas absolutely knew what they were doing, but they just didn't care. The blowback hit Sherman with the gentle touch of a railroad engine slamming into a brick wall. Something had to break. Sherman was a stiff-necked man at the best of times, and he simply could not deal with the humiliation of being mocked as a madman in the papers. It wasn't even merely the betrayal of an official report, or the relationship of a leading commander with his superior that hurt so much. Remember how Sherman had gone out of his way to ensure his good reputation and honest conduct? And here these simpering literary cowards, who would never dare hoist a gun and fight for their country, blackened his reputation from their nice safe offices far from the front. Sherman thought he might really be going mad from the stress of it, and resigned in November. He officially took up a post under Henry Halleck, but in practice Halleck gave him immediate leave. Sherman would get some rest at home for a month or so. And uh, if you remember some of our other episodes, uh, note that Don Carlos Buell would actually take over uh, the post in Kentucky. Now, for Sherman, this was very nearly the worst possible outcome. And for the Union cause as a whole, well, that would have been materially harmed had Sherman never returned to command. Thousands more would likely have died under both the United States and Confederacy. In reality... Whatever his faults and flaws, Sherman was exactly the man the nation needed and in the exact place it needed him. It would take a great turn of fate to restore his confidence. So, too, the problem in historical hindsight is that while Sherman really was very stressed and certainly at times gave in to his worries, he was absolutely right on the numbers. By the time he brought a functional end to the war in the West, three years later, General William Tecumseh Sherman would command an army in the field over a 100,000 strong, with an equal number garrisoning Tennessee and Kentucky behind him. He didn't foresee the exact terrain or how the course of the war would go. But when all was said and done, he had much more ability to look at the real situation, the size of the territory that he had to control, and the likely resources opposing him than any other man in the army. Just as Sherman had given Abraham Lincoln a message that Lincoln needed, he told Cameron the facts as he saw them. But where Lincoln could calmly accept the bad news, ponder its value for what it was, and move on, Cameron felt the need to conceal ugly facts. The man who blithely accused Sherman of giving in to fear was himself giving in to fear. Curiously, within a few more weeks, it would be Simon Cameron, not William Tecumseh Sherman, ousted from his position and sent to ponder his life. As for Sherman, we will soon see how he fares. But one thing would remain true. He never, ever forgave journalists as a class. Quite frankly, in the future, several were lucky he didn't hang them as spies. Uh, given that the average reporter in the Civil War had the approximate respect for secrecy as the average town gossip, Sherman probably would have rested on fairly good legal grounds. Such was the life of Tecumseh Kump Sherman up at the time he first placed his feet into the spotlight. Now, before we close today, I actually want to apologize in some ways. Sherman's life is so rich, and we have such rich resources for it, uh, compared to many of his contemporaries, such as Joe Johnston, that uh, there are some very thorough uh, biographies out there, and I actually would firmly recommend that you read them. Uh, they're, they're good, and they make for a great story. Also unusual in the specific case of Sherman is that not only did he you know, do a lot of writing in his life, uh, but we actually have many of those letters, many more than for almost any of his contemporaries. 
Uh, for reference, I do want some credit uh, that I did not title this episode Tecumseh II Electric Boogaloo. Um, I am sorry that we didn't get to discuss his relationship as much with his family um, and even um, Ellen Sherman. There's just so much there uh, that we really can't put it into this episode. And finally, while looking at it, I uh, really thought that there deserved some jokes about venture capitalism uh, when talking about San Francisco and its uh, experiment during the gold rush. I was like literally like writing this episode and sort of looking at the news and going, well, that's uh, awful similar there. Uh, but uh, you may make of that what you will. Actually, in fact, uh, literally uh, at, across the street uh, from where Sherman uh, operated his bank uh, in the 1850s, I think there are two or maybe three venture capital firms. Uh, so make of that what you will. Uh, in any case, this has been the American Civil War podcast. Uh, I, this is a pretty long episode, so I hope it makes up for the fact that we're uh, delayed a week. Uh, and I hope you'll come back and join us next time.